You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. You want to come see us talk live on the Getting to Yes And podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking to Keegan-Michael Key, Second City alum, and L. Key about their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, A Journey Through the Art and Craft of Humor, on October 5th at 7 p.m., the Francis Parker School. This is part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. If you want to get tickets, go to chicagohumanities.org. So I love this podcast. It's with Susan Max Hammond and Ivy Ross. Susan is the founder and executive director of the International Arts and Mind Lab, Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics, a pioneering initiative from the Peterson Brain Science Institute at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Ivy Ross is a business executive, jewelry designer, and since July 2016, vice president of hardware design at Google. Prior to being appointed VP of hardware design, she led the Google Glass team at Google X. They have co-written the book, Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Susan and Ivy, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So I was thinking, I was trying to figure out how to even start this conversation because there's so much crossover with regard to what you're talking about in the book and the world that I live in. So I, I thought of a recent example. We did a two-day leadership offsite. So there's maybe about 12 of us in the leadership group at Second City, and we hold ourselves up in a, in a hotel meeting room uh, to talk about uh, the now, the future, where, where we're going. And the, one of the things I loved about this, because we're an arts organization, is both days we had improv teachers come in and lead us through games. And the first day, our uh, Jen, who's our artistic director, creative lead, she brought in a bunch of different colored balls. And we got in a circle, and then she had us throw the ball, but in, a, in some very specific patterns, and she kept adding other balls. And it became this incredible way for us. Yes, we were having fun and we were playing, uh, but we were also learning how to focus on each other. And 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 then when, when we debriefed, we were sort of talking about all these little things that were happening to make that game work. And of course, Second City is built on these games that were actually created by a social worker in the 1920s and 30s. Mm. And so I'm just curious when you hear that, you know, that that a corporation and we are a corporation would get together and play essentially a child's game, I would suspect you'd say, bravo, that's good for you. Bravo, that's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, that's right. 
that, and just so you know, I have always brought improv every, and I've worked in maybe 10 Fortune 500 companies, always brought it in. Um, and now science is proving, as Susan could talk about, how even when you doodle, um, yeah. you are able to focus more. And I think that's what the game that you're talking about yes. is actually saying, is that you remember, and I played that exact game, um, that uh, you can remember people's names better, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there's something about this um, need, nothing without joy, right? That's um, yeah. that's sort of like a motto for us is when you're, you know, beauty in the mundane, um, this idea of, um, you know, that kind of playful exploration where you are actually then creating synchronicity with each other. I also think that's a very critical human evolutionary requirement is to be in harmony and in sync with each other. And it makes me think of E.O. Wilson and his work around humans being used social. Um, you know, we share that with ants and termites and bees and that we need each other. And so that kind of exercise brings us back into our bodies and also I think into our humanity in a, in, in exactly the right way it should be. Yeah, it shows, I mean, that kind of game, it makes you radically present, right? At that yes. moment when you're being called and and we so often are not or don't understand what that really means to be radically present in that moment. And so a lot of improv teaches you that. Yeah, because we don't get to practice it. There's no, there's, there's no place that necessarily that, that we're going to practice that. And I, what I know too is, you know, we started the corporate group right around the time I started Second City in the late 80s. And um, we, we couldn't call it play. Corporations did not want to buy play. And I think, I mean, you know, I, you worked at Mattel, I think, right? I mean, there, there, are, there, there, may, maybe there might have been one or two places that, that understood that. But, I mean, this book and this topic, you take a turn. And I want to read a passage that's, that's uh, early in the book. You say, quote, many of us tend to think of the arts as either entertainment or as an escape a luxury of some kind. But what the book will, what this book will show you is that the arts are so much more. They can be used to fundamentally change your day-to-day life. They can help address serious physical and mental health issues with remarkable results. And they can both help you learn and flourish. This is not minor stuff. We are talking life and death stuff, right? Oh, for sure. And I think this book, you know, we had no idea because when we started writing it, it was, um, it wasn't even the pandemic or when we agreed to write it. We had no idea the shape the world would be in when they finally launched. And the world needs it more now than ever because it is our birthright. I mean, in tribal times and still today and with indigenous tribes, they don't even have a word for art. It is the way they live. It's their culture, which is the way we were wired. We were wired to have, you know, storytelling, dance, theater, graphics, all of that as just the way we live. And we've gotten so transactional and so optimized for productivity that we push these aside, these arts. And now more than ever, it's clear we need to bring them back into our diet. And the consequences for leaving them on the sidelines, I think are some of the things that we're, we're feeling now. Yeah. Huge surge in mental health issues, these, you know, really difficult issues around physical health, you know, this idea around not just coping, but flourishing. And, you know, when I, when we talk about words like birthright or, you know, wired, I think what we're trying to say, it's not a euphemism. It's not a metaphor. We are physiologically, neurobiologically 
hardwired for the arts and aesthetic experiences as something that we need like sleep, like exercise, like good nutrition. And when we don't have it, we're missing a major nutrient to what humanity really needs. And we are getting sicker in all the ways that we know. We aren't flourishing as a country, as a global sort of network of, of, of communities. Um, we're getting further and further away from each other. And so when you think, when you really, really stop and think about the neurobiology of this, it's really profound. And, uh, you know, in the, with the industrial revolution and, you know, we learned that science was the way forward. Rational thinking was the way forward. And we really stopped exploring these emotional states of being as knowledge, right? As, embodied knowledge. And I think what we're seeing now is the marriage of arts and sciences are really coming back together to show us that balance and that yin and yang and harmony that's really required for truly being human and thriving as humans. You know, this has been so true for me personally and professionally. So on a personal level, um, uh, in therapy, going through different kinds of, uh, you know, basically uh, embodied practices. Um, and certainly that, that's what we do when, when we do improvisation as well. And then the various guests we've had, whether it's Aunt, uh, Annie Murphy-Paul and the extended mind and these different, but this whole thing of, of and you have a quote in the book that I, I loved, and it's from a, a neuroantimist. I knew you were going to say that. You didn't tell say that one I was going to by Julie Bolte Taylor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she says, "quote We are actually feeling beings who think." I love that because the body is the thing telling this, you know, the brain what's going on. Yeah, and we think that we're thinking beings who once in a while feel, but her whole point is that's not the way we've been designed. We are designed as feeling beings first. And it's only recently that our kind of the mind has developed, but yet we hang on to that and stay in that cognitive mind. And so we we did an exhibit together. It was the first time Susan and I in 2018 gave the public a sense of what um, proved the fact that our body is feeling all the time. We did something at the Milan Design uh, Festival Salone where we had three different rooms three different aesthetics, and that meant different music, scent, textures, colors. And we had the participants wear a band that Susan's lab at Johns Hopkins and folks at Google uh, developed based on in which room or space would your body be most at ease, or you could say least stressed. Mm-hmm. And so people, we asked people to wear the band for five minutes in each room, no talking, no devices just be it was called a space for being but we invited them to you know touch the textures smell the smells dance to the music touch the art and then they moved from room to room and at the end we took off the band and we were able to show them we first asked them which room did you like the best Mm -hmm. and i thought oh god you know, if this isn't at least half the people, there's a disconnect between what they liked and what their body told them. So sure enough, 58% um, would tell us, let's say, room number two, and then we would show them the data in this beautiful ink blot-like te- uh, visual. And we said, but your body really liked being in room number three. And they're like, how mm. could that be? Mm. And, and it was, well, because your body is feeling all the time, and you may not and your mind may walk into a room and go, I like that room. It looks like something I saw in a magazine or my friend's house, 
but the sensory systems in your body isn't feeling the most comfortable in that space. And so it was really done just to show people exactly what her uh, quote was about, that we are feeling beings first. And that, you know, some people are not connected in to their mind and body. And that it's so important because we have agency over the things we surround ourselves with, if we understood how our body was feeling. Is, Susan, too, is this maybe why you started the first chapter around senses to sort of root this in? Let's let's root this in the body and uh, and have an understanding. Get, get let's get an intellectual understanding, a better intellectual understanding of these feelings. Yeah, yeah. So the you know the anatomy the the anatomy of the arts is that chapter, and what we wanted to show was this physiology. And, you know, we, in the sensory systems, you know, there, we talk about five, but researchers are now showing there probably are as many as 50 sensory systems. Five are the ones that we talk a lot about, but they're so extraordinary. And these are like the only ways that you bring the world in, right? So, you know, example, you have 3000 nerve receptors on the end of each fingers, your whole body has like you know, 4 million receptors, you know, the, the, the way that your taste receptors work, olfactory, vision, it's extraordinary how we are physiologically wired. Yet, as Ivy said, because we are so transactional, we often just discount that or we disassociate, right? We're so um, disembodied that we don't follow those physiological cues like body temperature, heart rate, um, you know, temperature, all of these things that are telling us something, you know, you know, breathing, they don't, we don't listen to them because we're so, so much about the task. And so the book we really wanted to show, first of all, how extraordinary the body brings these senses in, but then also neuroplasticity is sort of an extraordinary um, phenomena that we do where, you know, you're born with a hundred billion neurons and those neurons are waiting for you to connect them to each other mm. through synapses, through those sensory inputs that are coming in. And the most important inputs, you couldn't possibly, you know, process all of those things that are coming in all the time, but it's the ones that are most meaningful to you. The ones that, are either practically or emotionally salient, really important. And so you're creating these neural pathways that connect simultaneously many different parts of your brain. And so, you know, there's nothing that we can think of that has the same kind of um, potency as music or enriched environments, because at the same time, multiple systems, both in the brain and body are being engaged. So your circulatory system, your respiratory system, your neural systems, reward systems, endocrine um, uh, systems and immune systems are being engaged in a lot of these different experiences. So when you understand the basic neurobiology, um, we also talk in that chapter about the default mode network, which maybe we'll talk about. But when you understand the kind of hardware that you're born with. Now what we're seeing is researchers like Charles Lim, who's done some really beautiful work in creativity. He's in the book in the chapter on flourishing. Yep. Again, then can start to hone in on, well, what if we use music and dance for problems with gait? What if we used music to, that we know is generalized throughout the brain for autobiographical experiences for people that have Alzheimer's? What if we used these kinds of experiences to lower cortisol for stress? 
What if we used awe to increase our capacity for wonder and for flourishing? So it's it's a bit of a recipe, you know, for using these ingredients to be able to achieve different outcomes. I think you introduced a term I'd never heard, which is nature deficit disorder, uh, which I, I love that. And I'm, I think one of the things I feel very lucky with my kids is they both went to Waldorf schools, which meant that you you had to pack all these different kinds of clothes and coats and, you know, because they went out, unless there was lightning that was striking the school, they were outside. That That is just a thing that happens and, and was so important to them. And I have a garden that becomes like a, a refuge for my wife and I. And one of the things, and I think COVID showed us this too, for people who didn't have access to those kinds of spaces or here in Chicago, when they shut down the parks, they didn't know. They didn't know and of course, like, who knew? But it was just a terrible thing because that's the the one thing that I think people could find some solace in is go outside. Right. And nature is the most neuroaesthetic place there is because yeah. when you think about it, it has sound, temperature, light, color, shape. And as E.O. Wilson, who we also interviewed, reminded us, we humans, uh, 99.8% of the time we've been on this planet, we lived in nature. It's just like 0.2%. Uh, that we have lived in the built environment. And so you can say it is our nature to be in nature. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we, and it's because nature alivens our sensory systems. And when we're deprived of that, um, we get ill. So it's interesting that people gravitated toward that. Ironic that we had to go outside to be safer. Um, It was like the universe was forcing us, you know, to do that because it was, it was the right thing for us. Well, and Richard Louvre is the person that coined this nature deficit disorder. And, you know, he, we, he's also in the book, wonderful man. And he talked a lot about the fact that nature and the arts are two things that have been systematically devalued over the course of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's really interesting because they share, you know, they're getting, they're putting, you know, can't go outside for recess. You, there's no arts in the schools. You know, this idea of, you know, human built environment that doesn't honor nature, that doesn't honor these creative processes. And so he made that point to us. And I thought it was so interesting. I'd never thought about it. But as you systematically and sometimes um, intentionally, systemically cut people off from these life giving sources, of course, the, real, the, the end result is going to be illness discontent, disease, it, it, you know, it, there could be no other way. Um, yet, you know, we say in the book, too, that art creates culture and culture creates community and community creates humanity. It's not the other way around. Right. So I think the more we come back to that, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that and I'm at, I wonder I wonder if this surprised you with some of the findings about how we process poetry, because that was really interesting to me. And I know having uh, I had a very deep period of grief and I had read poetry as a young person and really hadn't as an adult. And that is where I went. And it was like and I, I and people sent stuff to me and it just but it was it was a place that and I didn't intellectually know why I was doing that. Can you talk about a bit about what, what you discovered about the way that we process poetry? Well, poetry is, um, you know, what, first of all, poetry, when you're reading poetry out loud, it actually activates um, a similar area that music activates. So that, you know, that makes a lot of sense when you think about rhythm and tone and, and different cadences. 
but also because poetry, uh, poetry is is believed to be the oldest form of written language, um, written arts language, mm. and it's it's metaphor and symbol, and so metaphor and symbol are things that we understand um, at a very um, intuitive level. Um, very, you know, sort of it's very um, ancient for us. We understand the symbolic representation of something, and I think poetry. You know, you don't have to ever know, have ever read poetry to have poetry speak to you in that symbolic metaphoric language. And so it becomes universal very, very fast and reaches a different part of our, it's not, it's, as Ivy said, it's not about rational thinking. It's about symbolic representation that's, that, that ties into comparative literature. You know, every culture uses very similar symbolic representations. Yeah, it's a little bit this idea too that we we underestimate the power of metaphor. We we underestimate uh, how important words are until we sort of see them being used in ways that are just terrible. Uh, and so I think a lot of uh, a, a lot of this work was really interesting to me. In, in that poetry is this idea that lives beyond language, where there's other kinds of discoveries that you can make, sort of untethered to that. And that that was just not something I think I ever considered. Well, think about. The difference between rock and stone mm. is a very soft a stone. Yeah. A rock implies aggression, right? Yeah. yeah. This is the English language, but these things hold true in other languages too, sort of where the emphasis is on the sounds and the and so how we even hear a metaphor in terms of a word, you know, the choice to pick a rock versus a stone is a creative decision. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's yeah. also super interesting. And words are vibration and vibration is sound. And it's super important in terms of the vibratory feel that each word has and how it affects our cells. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, uh, happy to see uh, my friend Renee Fleming show up in this book. Uh, so I worked with Renee. We, we developed a show at Lyric Opera Chicago and then, her work that she's done in healthcare became very in entwined with my world as well. And I think this, the, the sort of healing aspects of music probably don't surprise people, but if they haven't been connected to this, they probably don't know the places like the Cleveland Clinic and, and others. Music is happening all the time in many healthcare uh, facilities now, uh, in, in, in addition to aromatherapy and other things. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the power of music. Well, you know, Renee um, just became the World Health Organization ambassador for health and for health and arts, and um, we just shared a stage at the Kennedy Center last week on youth mental health. Mm. And it, she's she's just a phenom. Yeah, um, and you know, I think you're you're right that music is showing up in a lot of healthcare um, and at different levels. Some of it is um, developmental. Some of it is kind of uh, creating environments and, and a sense of safety within healthcare spaces, um, you know, in lobbies and in, um, on, you know, even in like recovery ICUs, places like that, but also in acute care. And so we're seeing music show up for people that are on respirators um, who've had, um, uh, lung transplants or stomach surgeries where they need to be able to breathe 
and, and mm-hmm. use their lung capacity. So um, creative arts music therapists are coming into the rooms and actually doing singing with patients who are just coming out of um, an acute stage to help them build lung capacity. During COVID, if you go on to Google Arts and Culture, there's something called Healing Breath. And it's whether you had long COVID or you had um, some kind of pulmonary issue or pollution that's really affected your breathing. There's 10 different uh, ways to breathe, exercises for breathing, um, using singing, humming, choir, chorus work. You know, there's a lot of great work around coming together to sing. And I want to underscore that you don't have to be good at it for it to right. have significant impact. I, sometimes I'm with, with Renee and she's singing happy birthday and I'm singing happy birthday. And I'm like, I'm singing for the Renee Fleming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not pretty, um, but it's, she's amazing. And it, but just the act of singing and humming um, change the, you know, affect the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve. And so it's really powerful. And what Susan just said is so important that you don't have to be good at it because so many people did a variety of arts activities when they were kids. And then because they thought they weren't good at it or someone told them they weren't good at it or yeah, it wasn't going to be their profession. They just parked it to the side, not realizing how important it is. So we've gotten so many notes from people that said, thank you for giving me permission to do these things again, um, knowing that it will still be incredibly helpful, even though I'm not great at it. Yeah, when, um, I did a keynote last week, and this always happens because I make people improvise from the stage, and they, they can stay in their seats, and, and I, I can tell the people who are just cringing about this stuff, and I'm like, here's the reality is that, that you cannot be creative if you're in judgment of self or judgment of others. Mm-hmm. You simply can. You cannot be creative, and that is where so much of us live because someone said something once to us when we were five years old, and we have not let it go. Right. And then, and you talk in the book about about these ideas of stigma and shame, but that that you know the fear of failure is is what is keeping so many people from even taking the what what should be the easiest first step in this direction. Absolutely, and you know, Sir Ken Robinson, that famous story. He went into nursery school. Who's an artist? Everyone's hand was up. By the yeah. time in first grade, sec- third grade, everyone's hand was down because someone said that's not the way you draw a tree or a house, and then that child got shut down and is now an adult and never picked it up again. So you're so right. Well, the shame piece is, um, you know, how many of us have had that, um, even as adults, where, you know, you just feel that part of you leave the room, right? And you you don't bring it back. And, you know, there's so much work on ACEs with, with children. But I think there's, Ivy talks about this, there's micro traumas every day, and yep. there's also large traumas, but when you don't feel safe and safety is certainly the absence of, of danger, physical and mental danger. But when you don't safe is also this idea that you can bring yourself forward. And so we call, we define art as creative self-expression. And if mm-hmm. you don't feel you're in a space where you can risk sharing that and, and playing with it, right. Playing with it, that your world can be very small and, and, you know, and that's this whole sense of loneliness and isolation. You know, I I think there's a lot in that about shame and stigma and how we choose to share ourselves. And we do talk in, in the book, uh, there's a researcher named James Pennebaker, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he does a lot of work on expressive writing. Yeah. And sometimes you can start in those very private ways, like sharing something that you haven't shared with anybody else, but sharing it in writing. And the act of doing that releases um, cognitive load. It also lowers cortisol. And it's a way to begin to get out in, in a safe way as you start to be able to explore your creative expression. And um, I, t- Ivy, I told Ivy this story that uh, one time I drew something and I shared it with my husband. And he was like, oh, that looks like something a, a five-year-old did. And it really hurt my feelings because I was really proud of it. <laughs> and um, so the next day I had him draw something and he explained to me that it was how he saw science. It's he's a scientist. And he had never found that. And, and I said, you know, it's really extraordinary. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I want to add... It looks like something a three-year-old would have done. And <laughs> did he take? Did he get the note? He did. He did, and and he got it because the point was it wasn't about what we all have yeah. been trained to believe that you know if it's not you know commercial ready, it's not valuable. Yet it's all valuable, and so I think there's really an important lesson in that too. And it's what's important is that we understand that. The opposite of play is not work. It's actually depression. So so play is doing something different than we do every day without a prescribed outcome. So, and that's where creativity is and where discoveries happen because we're so much, you know, you're going to make something, but there's a preconceived outcome. It's going to, it has to be good or it has to serve this purpose. But where um, the benefit is, is to play without that outcome, predetermined outcome. And just do not, because if you have no predetermined outcome, you can't judge whether you met the outcome or not. And this is, this is not easy. So, so I, I, re, I recall uh, my friends at IDEO, we did a swap. So we would go over and do audio stuff and IDEO would come over and do improv stuff. And I was so in my head because I'm not good at drawing things and they have all these post-its and markers and, you know, and we just have an empty room. And, and so, you know, you, those of us who are in the industry, Renee Fleming, you know, has suffered from incredible uh, stage fright um, and still is, is like, I've gotten texts from her at certain times about stuff. And I'm like, Renee, you're like the greatest singer in the world. <laughs> Fine. Like, but so, so this is, and, and, People I've worked with, whether it's Stephen Colbert or Tina Fey or, or those folks, they all have performance anxiety and, and other issues that affect them. So this is superstars. This is regular human beings. We're all fighting through these things. But I think what, what you're pointing out is it's not just vital with regard to, you know, having a good day. What we are talking about, the difference between a flourishing life and a life that is not. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. That's kind of the the big stakes, I think. The risk, right? Are you willing to go outside of that, uh, that fear that, you know, it could even be physical pain. Um, You know, that was one of the studies that I thought was so interesting in the book, the Bo Lato's work with Mm -hmm. Cirque du Soleil, where, you know, all people coming together and feeling that sense of, you know, there's something bigger than just us that that's a great knowing. And we all, I think all is a powerful thing, but the other kind of secondary halo of awe is that you're more likely to take greater risk. And I think mm-hmm. we, we all have to take more risk in order to grow and to flourish. Right. And that's a muscle, right? It's like, 
you know, when Ivy and I met, um, you know, the reason Ivy and I met was because I took a chance. I took a risk. I wrote somebody I didn't know. And I was like, I think we should know each other. Right. I think I'd like to tell you about this. And, you know, toss of the coin. Right. You know, you don't know if somebody's going to write you back, but you have to be able to take those risks. And the more you take them, the easier it gets. Actually, that's an interesting thing, too, is that. But, you know, I know with Renee, Renee had physical pain. Mm -hmm. That's how severe her stage fright is. I mean, Ivy and I, I think neither one of us love getting in front of an an audience, but we suck it up, right? We we figure out how to do it because it's important. It's important. And, um, and I think that's a really important thing. It's not, you know, fail. And it's not the the whole thing of, you know, you, you know, you have to fail and get up and get do better. It's more like, how do you move through those things and, and figure out how do you get stronger every single time? Mm. Uh, so I was also happy that uh, you talked a little bit about humor and laughter and how important that is. And, and frankly, because I certainly feel this, that it's very serious. It's very serious, our need to laugh. Totally. Well, that's the work of, that's the, where we share Dan Levitin's work, right? Yeah. And Dan's a pretty funny guy. Um, but the truth of the matter was um, he'd have been funny with or without um, teaching at McGill and, you know, working with whatever it was, 500 undergraduate students. But he found that humor actually helped people retain information better mm-hmm. and that um, and and also to recall it in more um, accurate and profound ways. And so, you know, humor is um so deeply embedded in our psyche. And I think it, it actually turns out that, you know, it, it is a, a mechanism for true connection and, and collaboration and, and something that I think we totally, you know, have sort of forgotten that it's, it's incredibly effective, you know, just go all the way back to the, to the Greeks and thinking about, you know, theater and, you know, comedy and tragedy, right? Yep. And, and there's been, there was a, some fMRI studies out of China that were showing that the same part of the brain that processes an insight is the part that processes a joke. Because, you know, obviously this is sort of this classic divergent thinking. You know, you're set up for one thing and you're surprised and it's another, which, which was a survival technique, you know, uh, uh, way, way, way long ago um, that also activated as, as humor. So this, this – and, and what I know, too, when my wife used to run the training center at Second City on the very first day of orientation – she would say to everyone, this work is going to change your life. And, and people were very surprised by that because they're coming to a, what they think they're coming to a comedy class. Mm-hmm. And, and what she knew in her many years of teaching then, even more so now, is no, because you're, you are going to, through, through humor and then through improvisation, make all these discoveries about yourself in collaboration with other human beings. You, you are, you're going to supersize your salience, your relationships, all the things that are important to a life well lived. And um, unfortunately, culturally or whatever, that that is just, that's not the messaging that I grew up with. And I don't think it's the messaging that either of you probably grew up with either. No, I totally agree. And I think, and Susan and I speak about this. We have to start, it starts when we're kids, like really wanting to rewrite the book of what we explain, you know, 
in terms of sensorial literacy and all these things yep. about the arts. If we could have the science of that embedded in the beginning, I think people would lead very different lives and we wouldn't be in the shape we are today. And you know, all the things we've been talking about to solve the pro complex problems of our future, we're going to need to have these capacities uh -huh. to, you know, to be able to think of possibilities and become more imaginative. So, you know, this, these studies and this work and people absorbing and under embodying what we're saying is more important than ever, not only for our own personal health and flourishing, but for the health of humanity. Yeah. 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 All right. We always end the podcast uh, asking our guests for a yes and story. Ivy, I'm actually start with you. Do you have a yes and story for us? Yeah. Well, I have to say when Susan, you know, she reached out to me on LinkedIn um, about joining her luminary board. And I said, yes. Um, then we had a salon in my home with uh, neuroscientists and artists. And at the end, she said, I've always wanted to write a book about this. Would you want to write it with me? And my first instinct was to say no, because I have a full-time job. Mm -hmm. I have all this rational reasons why I can't start writing a book. But my heart said yes, and I'll figure it out. And so sure enough, that was, that was before COVID happened. And the truth is I couldn't have written this book with Susan, if it wasn't for COVID, because during COVID, I didn't have to drive uh, 90 minutes each way. So like three. Yeah, three frees up some time. Yeah, so three to four hours a day that I didn't have to drive is the time pre 9 a.m. that I was able to work with Susan. So I said yes and because it was it was um, in my heart and I would figure it out later. And then the universe helped me out by unfortunately creating COVID. <laughs> well, there's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. Absolutely. Susan, do you have a yes and story for us? Yeah, well, yeah, I was, I mean, I was joking earlier today. I have a couple of them that I'm not going to share, but, <laughs> uh, but the one that comes to mind is, um, is, is this idea that, you know, I, um, I was raised in a family of makers um, and, you know, all the hand handwork kind of making my sister's an artist. My mother writes poetry um, you know, so, so the yes was always making and always doing. Um, the end is when I really started to add science to that mm. and science. And this is when I started a company called Curiosity Kits, where I was just fascinated by how children were more attentive, learned more when they were making and sharing what they were doing. And then when they started to share that with a loving adult, in their lives, it was exponential. And then when I started to learn about neuroscience and cognitive science and behavioral health. And so I think it's the yes end, it's the science and the arts together is really important. And one is not more important than the other, but it's really in community. Um, and I also love what you said about humor is I think it's, 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 you know, humor and sort of you know, seriousness. It's, it's, I think yeah. it's, those two together is really important and not to forget that because it, the humor always to me changes the environment and makes everything sort of make sense. So I really love that too. The book is called your brain on art, how the arts transform us. Uh, Susan McSalmon and Ivy Ross. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And thanks for the work that you do. You do great work. 
Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive